Let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we come in Jesus' name that we can hear your word, that we can gather as a community and yield our hearts to your direction. Lord, we pray that you would help us hear your word, receive your word. And not only that, Father, let your word bear fruit in our life. Lord, I pray that as the man born formerly blind, that um, the man who is now formerly blind, that we could see you more clearly after this, Father. That this could be one more um, stepping stone in who you are calling us to be as individuals and even more so as a community, Father. Thank you for the work of Jesus and the work he always does in the day, Father. And we pray that we can imitate him and be workers of the day that bring light mm. into every avenue we walk into. Amen. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So as um, has already been mentioned, we're studying the Gospel of John right up until um, Easter Sunday. And um, we're going to skip the... Uh, what's known as the upper room discourse. So John 14 to, to 18, we're not going to do. But if you're interested in hearing my thoughts about John uh, 14 to 18, just call me. I have a lot of opinions about that. Um, I know many of you are very humble, and you've never done anything like this, but have you ever tried to defend yourself on a point so fervently only to find out you were wrong? Yes. <laughs> I was involved in a very heated debate about who the starting quarterback was for the Washington Redskins when they went against, um, I thought it was Joe Theismann, right? I thought he was the um, starting, the same year he was starting, but it was another quarterback. But I was in a heated debate. I was going back and forth. I'm telling you, this is before Wikipedia just quickly made things available. This is like... My, my 11th grade year where you just couldn't Google everything to solve it immediately. And so I stood on my principle. We were going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and I won the debate. Oh. Oh. Everyone was like, I think Steve's right. Anyway, so, lo and behold, next day, I went home, and I'm, like, I'm dead wrong. And then we came back and they're like, bro, you were wrong. And it was humbling. Wow, how could I be wrong? You know, I almost felt like, you know the butterfly effect? I felt like someone messed with time. I felt like I was right. I'm like, everyone else is wrong, but clearly the facts are pointing to something else. You see, familiarity with a particular um, topic or a particular subject actually creates more blindness for all of us. You know, the more we think we know something, the more likely we are to mess up. You know, for some of us who are, like, into sports, again, using basketball, because that's something I did, to, to make a, le- a left-hand layup is left-right jump. But the more you get used to it, sometimes you just do a little hop step, and then they call traveling. You're like, you know why? Because I got away from what I actually knew. Mm-hmm. You see, we live in a post-Christian culture in this city. Portland is what most people consider post-Christian. Now, Christianity hasn't gone away completely, but... There are a lot of people who are like, you know, I, I kind of heard a little bit about the gospel. I kind of heard a little bit about Jesus. Like there were a swath of people who watched the He Get Us um, commercial during the Super Bowl who were like, I have no idea what the foot washing is about. Mm-hmm. It was surprising because, you know, I've been steeped in following Jesus for so long. As soon as I saw John 13. But there was a swath of people online who was like, what was that about? Does wow. Jesus get pedicures? <laughs> like, <laughs> what are they trying to promote? And you're like... That reality of 
biblical truth about Jesus and his service is just lost on this world, though a lot of the world thinks we know who Jesus is, while not actually knowing who he is. As disciples, I think that can happen for us as well. You know, some of us have read the Bible cover to cover, and you're like, you know, I know the Bible. I know what's in the scriptures. I know what's here. What we're going to look at today in John 9 is... Instead of Jesus being on trial, now the man formerly born blind is on trial. And they're going to go back and forth. And the key word that's going to come up consistently is no. What do people know? What does he know about himself? What does he know about Jesus? What do they know? What do they know about the scriptures? And, you know, one of the things in the Old Testament, the constant refrain, especially in the first five books, is remember. Remember, remember, remember. And so as we are studying this together, today's title is Know Him, because at the core of it, that's what gets explored here. Who is Jesus? Who is this guy healing people? And I think that's important for us to always remember who Jesus is and to know him in a more meaningful and powerful way. So let's go to John um, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. The word means sin. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So Jesus and his disciples run into this person, and that's a very poignant question. Like, our theology, how we view the world, says you're only born blind if someone did something wrong. It could be that this guy was going to do something completely evil, so God blinded him before he could do it, or maybe his parents did something, or an ancestor did something. And so the disciples asked a question about sin, because their theory says sin, things like blindness, only has a direct cause to our sin. There's no, there, there was no space in their particular theology for, you know, sometimes things just happen because of the fall, not necessarily because of anyone's sin directly. So Jesus puts pushes back against this notion, and he's like, this happens so the works of God may be displayed. I think a disclaimer is very important for us as followers of Jesus. Sometimes we're going to run into things that we don't have the answer for, that we don't know why it happened. Mm -hmm. Be very careful that you say this happens, that the works of God may be displayed. Sometimes a child gets cancer and they pass away, and you're like, that happens so the works of God may be, you don't know. We don't know, but what we can acknowledge is that's a part of the fall. That's a part of the consequences of a world in rebellion to God, but not in rebellion on a personal level, but on rebellion at a cosmic level. I just want to say that before you go around telling people, oh, this happens so God can be glorified. There are some really challenging things that we don't have the answer to, and we um, suffer in the mystery collectively. And so anyhow, Jesus pushes back, and what's interesting, what he says in verse 4 He says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. 
night is coming when when no one can work. And you know, for if, if you're not paying attention really close, you think the we is the, the apostles. <coughs> Jesus is not talking about the apostles. Several scholars point to the reality and to the perspective that who Jesus is talking about is himself and the blind man. So who Jesus is talking about here, the we is himself and the man born blind. They are going to do a work that will glorify God. They are going to do a work that will point to God. And it kind of sets us up for this whole interaction between um, the disciples of Jesus. I mean, between this blind man and the religious leaders. And so this is one of those unique situations where the disciples have no part in this miracle. They're just witnessing it. But it isn't so much that the man's eyes being able to see is really what's going to surprise them and really challenge us prayerfully. It's what happens afterwards. And I think this part of Christianity, I think, is so familiar to many of us. But sometimes we get confused when these things happen. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus is like, I'm the light of the world, and I'm literally going to provide light for this guy's eyes. But the real miracle is what happens in this discussion. Or the real pointer, the real sign. Mm -hmm. You see, because the Messiah was supposed to come in recovery and, and recover sight for the blind. But in so many of the Old Testament passages, like in Isaiah um, 29, 35, and 42, if you want the exact verses, we can talk afterwards. The Messiah's recovery of sight to the blind almost always had a more spiritual connotation to it and not necessarily um, a, a physical connotation. All things considered, if this were to happen, you would think verse 1 through 7 should end with a happy ending. Hey, man, the guy got his eyes. He's, you can see this is Let's throw a party. It does not end in a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think most of us would be like, why didn't, why didn't they just celebrate? Why couldn't they just... But that's the point Jesus is trying to make. And I, and I pray that what the scriptures are trying to communicate here, it will become clear to us as well. Let's go to verse um, chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. Chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. His neighbor said... His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't... This the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were, you, how then were your eyes open, they asked. The day of this crowd of people. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it in my eyes. He told me to go to um, Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So the blind man and his neighbors and his community are looking like, wow, you can see. This is amazing. Is it actually you? Is it really who you are? And this idea that he used to sit wherever he used to sit and beg, they're like, it it looks like him, but clearly he could see. The sign was not believable. It was not believable that God restored this person's sight. And there's something about the work of God that can be very challenging for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. The, the, the miraculous, but even the not so miraculous. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to go down to Atlanta and hang out with a campus ministry. And one of, one of the days I was hanging out with this particular campus ministry, they shared that they were banned from campus from 2013 um, to 2017. 
So that when, I, when I went there, it was 2017, and they just got restored back to campus. And so I was talking with the minister, and I was like, oh, so tell me the story. What happened? And so in 20, from 2010 to 2013, a number of students on this particular college campus became believers of Jesus. But it wasn't so much that they became believers of Jesus, which kind of concerned the student body and the, and the school president and so many other people. It was the radical transformation. There was a lot of transformation. And so a lot of parents are concerned. Like if Stephen comes home right now and he cleans the entire house, I'm like, what did they do to you? <laughs> I don't, you know, there, there's certain things you just don't expect, even if it's good. If Stephen came, oh, I'm going to clean the entire house. I'm going to be respectful. I'm going to be nice to Brian. I'm like, whoa, what's going on? Who, what is he learning up there? I want to sit in on that class. It's seldom I'm, I'm not going to rejoice instantly, honestly. I'm like, my kid has changed so much. I need to account for why this has happened, which is a natural reaction for a parent. You know, in your head, you're like, oh, yeah, of course I'm going to be happy that they're doing the things I actually really want them to do. You'd be like, no. And yes, but mostly no, because until I find out why are they doing these things. And so while they were on the college campus, people were making huge changes with alcohol. There were a couple of students who told their parents, even though it was a family <coughs> tradition, I'm not going to drink until I'm 21. Parents were like, what? You've been drinking since you were 16 in our guides. You don't get out of control. You don't get drunk. Like, what's wrong with you? Who's telling you you can't drink? And they're like, you know, it just dishonors God. Here's the scriptures, you know, obey the laws of the land. And they clearly, and they, and they had solid reasons. People made decisions about their sexual integrity with their significant others. Some people even broke off relationships. And they're like, what? Family members got radically open about sin that they got away with. Like, hey, dad, you know that time where you came home and $300 were missing? Well, I swiped it, dude. They're like, what? You got away with that? I thought I was just forgetful. Like, it was so radical that the parents got together and said, this group is doing something dangerous to our kids. Well, fast forward three years, those kids were still practicing, and then, you know, I commend those guys. A lot of times when you're getting heat, you end up just dropping everything. But those kids stayed faithful, and a lot of the parents saw it was something deeper than it was just this particular group. The students were kept going back to their Bibles. And they were like, and then so they got with the, um, the, the, the director of the religious club, and he was like, listen, man, I believe in Jesus like everyone else here, and these guys have had a clear transformation. Do we really want to get rid of this group because they've had a clear transformation? Like, it, it's sustainable. It was past two semesters. These guys are just different people now. So they reinstated them, and the Lord has blessed their work consistently over in that group. But I say that to say, this guy's eyes being recovered, it just feels like it betrays what we actually know. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't want people to change, change, change. We want progressive change. Mm-hmm. Unless you're in a situation where you're in a nightmare, you want progressive change. You want something to gradually change. And so you have this situation with this guy born blind. He's a brand new person. And so the formerly born, born blind guy is like, I am the same person. And what's cool is he shares his testimony. Yeah. You know, like I can imagine all those students talking to their parents like, who's making you um, be honest about stealing $300 from me? My faith in Jesus. No, but who's making you do it? My faith in Jesus. Who's making you stop have sex with your girlfriend or boyfriend before marriage? My faith in Jesus. 
Who's no, 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 someone's making you. I'm gonna take you away from there for like six months. Someone is making you. No, I'm going back to the scriptures, and this is what Jesus desires, and I want a covenant that's faithful with Jesus. Wow. You know, I've seen even within our fellowship, we had Christians who who like to lower the bar. We mean well, but we like to lower the bar for faithfulness to Jesus. Yeah. Like, don't take that discipleship stuff too serious, man. Come on. Live a little, just a little. Come on, man. Steve ain't looking. Lord knows I'm not. <laughs> I'm really not. I, as the psalmist said, my sin is ever before me. I'm always checking my sin out first. Um, but, you know, like, who's making you do whatever it is that you do? If you're faithful to Jesus, it stands out. It stands out. This is why we read this, the, the, the passages like Luke 9, Luke 14. It stands out. And so this guy shares his testimony that God has worked in his life. And that's the reason he does what he do. Let's go to 9.13. 9.13, they brought the Pharisee, they brought to the Pharisee the man who had been blind. Now the day on which he had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a sinner perform such a sign? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man said, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. So they're going to go call his mom and dad, which is, you know, you're always in trouble. Is this your Sunday ass? Is this the one you say who was born blind? How is it that he cannot see? The word no. We know he is our son. The parents answers. And we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid that the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who would acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. A second time they summoned him, and the man who had been born blind, give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple too? They hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't know where he has come from. The man answered, now this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, how he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. 
super discouraging, right? <laughs> Steep the sin at birth. The man like, I couldn't see at birth. Oh, really insensitive, guys. Uh, <laughs> so they brought the man to the Pharisees. And the reason they brought the man to the Pharisees is like, with, with any of us, we go check out specialists, you know, like, if you got a messed up knee and we had someone in here who's a knee doctor, we come up to that person first before we go see the doctor. You're like, hey, my knee's making some funny noise. What do you think? And they look. And, and I got a lot of love for people who are professionals in their field who always hook up their followers of Jesus with good advice, free advice. But, you know, we walk up to someone who kind of knows what they're talking about. So if you're a car person, I talk to you first. I'm like, hey, Tim Conley. What do you think? My car's making a noise and da-da-da-da-da. Bro, it's your belt and da-da-da-da. Nice. And then I go to a mechanic who can fix it. It's my belt. And they're like, oh, it may not be your belt. And you're like, no, it is. But hold on. Tim, they're saying it's not my belt. <laughs> what is it? And so Tim has saved me a lot of money since moving back because he keeps me from getting hustled. Nice. And so I appreciate Tim. Um, but they go to the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They're like, this guy who was a beggar can see what is going on. Give us biblical insight. Give us religious insight. What is supposed to be happening here? And so the Pharisees deduce that he can't be a religious leader because he's doing this on the Sabbath. And the laws of the Sabbath are very clear. You don't heal or do any of those kind of things unless it's life-threatening. He would have been fine to heal him on a Monday or a Sunday. Like he, one let one way and one more day to be healed would have honored God and helped this guy see. Jesus clearly is not a man of God, so that's their opinion. And if you're wondering where that comes from or where thoughts like that come from, they were written down in this thing called the Mishnah, which is what Jewish religious leaders kind of collected. And they have a, I think it's like an eight-page things you can or can't do on the Sabbath, which is pretty intense. Uh, shout out to them. And so they're like Jesus can't be from God because he wouldn't break one of God's laws to perform a miracle. They said, but what do you think about him? That's what they asked the blind guy. He's like, he's a prophet. And what he's saying, he's not so much saying that, oh, the blind man, I mean, the, blind, the formerly blind man is not saying that Jesus is a prophet as if he's like Elijah or something, but he's like, he has to be on God's side because how else could I see? Like, how else do you make sense of this? And so they... This is really intense. So they invited his parents, and John tells us that the parents are fearful that they might get excommunicated from um, the synagogue community. And excommunication from the synagogue community is a big deal, guys, especially in that particular world where if you're excommunicated, they treated you the same way the Christians with their church, with church discipline, they treated you like a pagan or a tax collector. You lose a lot of benefits if you get kicked out of a synagogue community. Mm -hmm. And so it was religious, it was financial, and it was social. They were going to lose a lot on the strength of their one child. You know, I've been reading um, David Brooks' book about how to see people deeply. It's masterful. I wouldn't encourage it to everyone. He used flavor, flavorful language. So if you're like, I don't like flavor in my language, do not read his book. But if you can deal with some flavor, he's been mentioning some really thoughtful things that made me think of this particular passage here where he gets kicked out of his community. His parents are threatening to get kicked out of the community. It's clear. We guys, we already read it. Connor read it. He's going to get kicked out of this community. 
what this man is about to experience and what he's presently experiencing is probably one of the worst things that can happen to an individual, especially on the heels of an incredible miracle. Yeah. Where people should be rejoicing with you, like, you can see, this is amazing. We're so, instead, he's on trial. He's having a real hard time with this situation. <coughs> instead of his parents standing behind him, like most people would want their parents to do, they're like, I don't know, ask him. That's, it's him. It's on him. It's, he's alone. You know, instead of, like, man, they should support me. Instead of a radical embrace of everyone like, you can see, let's hug him. This, is, this guy was a beggar. Now he can get integrated into community in a real powerful way. They deprive him of community and they kick him out. And there is an overreaction to the sign instead of celebrating, not, not ce celebrity, celebrating. Shout out to the celebrities though. <laughs> <laughs> Only a few letters. You see how you built me up? That's what he needed. He needed a community building up like. <laughs> just, a, just a few letters. Like, <clears throat> celebrities. Uh, <laughs> anyhow, instead of celebrating, they're talking about the sign. You know, I don't know if any of you ever had good news and you had good things to share and people spent more time. Critiquing what was happening instead of yeah, just right. man, I'm bringing yeah. this good news to you. Why are we yeah. critiquing whatever? I'm that. I'm guilty of that. <laughs> I'm guilty of that. You bring really good news to me. I'm gonna start like, oh, what? Well, who, who said you? What? What? And you're like, bro, can we first be happy? Can we be happy for like a, a day, and then you can ask me the questions later? I'm like, well, there you go. So this guy, he gets isolated. And what he probably needed the most more, which the healing, this uh, the vision healing is one thing. The social healing that he's going to need after yeah. this situation is another thing. Yeah. It's going to take some time, I think, to get reintegrated. Like, mom, dad, I can't believe you ain't stand with me. Mm. Like, seriously. Or the people in the community, we pray about a God who's good, and then he's good to me. Mm. And now there's this huge issue. Like, yeah. what is going on yeah. here? You see, imagine what it has done to him this life of being blind, even this situation, what it could potentially do to him. <clears throat> There's a, a phrase from a philosopher named Will Storr who talks about sacred flaws. And Jim and I were talking earlier this morning about it. You know, when, when certain things like getting kicked out of a community happen, sometimes we start to build defense mechanisms that protect us. And those sacred flaws actually are helpful for a season, but like anything else, they run their time. So for me, similar to Jim, I have issues with my anger, but it stems from fear and it stems from insecurity. But anger allowed me not to get picked on any further, allowed people not to unpack those things any further. Because when I got angry, people backed up. People were like, whoa. I'm not going to touch this subject. And I was able to even hide it from myself that I was experiencing indignation. But then I look under the hood of the car and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so insecure. I'm so scared what could happen to me. I'm so fearful what can happen to me. Imagine what this guy is experiencing right now. It's his family. He, he could easily sit back and say, you know, I'm going to cave in and I'm going to say, even though something incredible happened, I'm just going to yield. I don't want to lose everything that's important. I'm going to say, yeah, I guess I was always born. I could see I just lied the whole time. 
but he stands on the truth. He stands on um, what's happening here. So I want to talk about empathy really quickly. <clears throat> as, as we learn how to see God work in incredible ways, empathizing is an incredible skill. This crowd here can learn a thing or two about empathy. The first step of empathy is mirroring. Yeah. Have you, so mirroring is catching the emotions. I'm not good at this. So if someone comes in happy, match their happiness. If someone comes in discouraged, match their discouraged, especially if they're coming to talk to you about whatever they're happy or discouraged about. Match it. So if they're like, man, I'm having a really rough week. Ah, oh, man, I'm sorry that's happening to you. Not like, hey, yeah, you know, it's a rough week, man. God is good, right? And you're like, all right. You're not really here for that. You're not really hearing me out. The second thing is mentalizing. What is mentalizing? It is finding a similar situation in your own life. You don't need to tell the other person this, but find a similar situation in your own life and how you would receive it. So there are certain things I cannot relate to. Like, I don't know because of what I do um, for a living, getting a chance to serve the church here. I don't know what it's like to miss a huge project deadline. But I know what it's like to have a kickoff week as a campus minister and it not be done excellently. So while the two are not the same exactly, I could like, oh, I could kind of wear your shoes a little bit. And if that was a bad kickoff week for me, and what I would have felt, and then, oh, let me try to offer or give in any way um, any encouragement I can. And when empathizing, the hardest thing is not to one-up someone. <laughs> that, and that's a natural human instinct. Yeah. We hear someone suffering, and we're like, oh, but you know what my suffering was. And then you're like, it is a little cringy. <laughs> but we mean, we're trying to connect, and I get that. If you yeah. are the one-upper, yeah. I know you're trying to connect. Mm -hmm. I think most people know you're trying to connect, but it minimizes what people are going through. Yeah. <laughs> so imagine if someone else who got healed by Jesus was here after the guy received his sight. Like, you're talking about this. Look, I was paralyzed, and I'm walking, and everyone hates me. <laughs> so we're, like, in this thing together. <laughs> and you're like... He's like, oh, right now my parents hate me this very second. Hey, look, I was going to follow Jesus and his, my parents, my cousins too, bro. And you're like, <laughs> and I get it. I get it. I, 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 I think everyone who does that, I think most of their intentions are well-meaning. But that's not empathy. It, it, it is um, mad discouraging. That's a technical term. That's a technical term. Mad discouraging. And so, after mentalizing, putting yourself in that position and not one-upping someone, so you mentalize it, but you don't need to verbalize it, what you mentalize. So, oh, I have a similar, but you don't need to hear about my campus ministry experience. If you wanted to know about that, then you could say, have you ever been in a situation like that? And that's your opportunity to share what you've been through. That's just, it is what it is. And then caring. Caring is one of the hardest things to do. So after you figure out um, what it's like to be in this person's situation. It's now trying to figure out how do you meet, how do you best meet the needs. Sometimes people tell you straight up, sometimes you got to read in between lines, sometimes right. you got to be silent. Caring is the hardest part. Mm -hmm. But I think once people recognize that you met them emotionally where they were, you tried to meet their needs, they will be sympathetic in working with you. What the blind, what this formerly blind man needed in this moment was compassion and celebration. Mm 
People need to celebrate this moment with him. But instead what he got was interrogation. And if you've ever been in a situation where God has done some incredible work in your life and you've been interrogated, understand that God feeds you. And that if you still need to talk about that, then there's people here who want to hear yeah. about that and be able to be present <clears throat> with you in that. Yep. And so they, give the express, they gave the expression, give glory to God. What they are challenging him here is you gave glory to Jesus, give it to God. Mm. You, know, you know God wasn't working through Jesus if your eyes were really healed. Mm. Now the last time that phrase was used was in Joshua where Achan's family got stoned. Oh, man. So you know you hear a phrase like that if you're a Bible reader, give glory to God, you're like, whoa, the stones are coming. Which actually they did in a in a in a in a um, in a non literal sense. He got excommunicated, but they wanted him to give glory to God, and he's like, "I'm giving glory to the one who healed me." Which just so happened to be the Word become flesh. You see, this expression at its core is saying God is doing something here. I mean, something happened here, but it isn't of God. Can you give the right testimony? I think a lot of pressure sometimes when we are in community with one another, when we're talking to family members who are not followers of Jesus or friends, we don't want to give glory to God. We shave our testimony. You know, I've been in situations where, you know, they're like, oh, yeah, so how come you're not sleeping with your girlfriend? You know, I just just want to be, you know, celibate. You know, it is, you know. Oh, how come your kids don't watch this movie? Well, you know, just like, there's stats on there that's not good. It's like, you know, it's not holy, man. Mm. You ask it, I'm going to tell you. Yeah. You know, it's like, honestly, God blesses the truth, guys. Yeah. 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 He really does. Just tell the truth. Tell them exactly why you're doing it. Mm. If they didn't want to know, guess what they should not have done? (laughs) (laughs) They should have not. Hey, why do you dress that way? Well, since you want to know, I'm trying to live a simplistic life because life doesn't consist of the abundance Jesus teaches. I was just talking about your jacket, but sure. You're like, well, I didn't know. You should have better questions. (laughs) But God really does bless the truth, guys. Just tell the truth. Tell exactly why it is you're doing whatever it is you're doing. And I know the fear. What if if I say this Christian thing and they kick me out? What if I say this Christian thing and it costs me the job? What if I say this? I have seen even when those things happen, God has a way of working it out. Mm. Yep. He has a way of working it out. Sometimes we look back and be like, I'm grateful I told the truth right there. Mm. Instead of getting away with whatever short-term um, pleasure we get from not being truthful. Mm. Thus, as Richard Bauckham says, they refuse to see that God has been glorified, not despite Jesus, but in Jesus, whose glory is revealed in his sign. Mm. And they're proving that they're blind. I can't, this is what in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is what is called blaspheming the Spirit. What we're watching right here is blaspheming the Spirit. A clear sign has happened, and you're like, it can't be from God. I would say if someone has recovery inside of mind, you don't need to attribute it to God, but I would say hold your tongue and say God has not worked. If you see something like a clear miracle, don't be like, God didn't do that. You'd be like, well, you know what? I don't know who did that. Let me continue to inquire and let me suspend what God is able to do would be my strong encouragement. He replies, he knows he's been healed. They're like, is he, is he a sinner? Is he not? He's like, I don't know, but I've been healed. Imagine if that was our testimony. 
You know, a lot of people are concerned about Christianity for good reason. There's certain things that are that Christians have done historically and even lately that are really bad. But your your transformed life is an incredible testimony. Yeah. Yeah. It's just an incredible testimony. Now maybe you don't feel like your life is transformed a lot. Even your inability to be transformed is an incredible testimony. You're like, I see the standard, and I want it, and it just ain't happening for me, but I want it, and I want to figure it out. Like, I had a whole bunch of respect for my friends who have gone through AA and have been saying things like, I will figure out how to be sober. Instead of being defeated, they're like, God's grace is sufficient. I will figure this out. Yeah. But I yeah. want the freedom so bad. Instead of like, well, you know, I guess it'll never work. You're like, no, just keep, keep trucking along. The Lord is good, man. And so what verse 30 shows us is, and, and I think the blind man connects on this point really powerfully, it's more amazing to not believe this miracle than it is the opposite. It's like, wow. The religious leaders can't see it. And I have found religious people, self-included, have the hard time acknowledging God's work. Have the hardest time just differentiating. You're like, man, you know that group fed a million people. But aren't they like communists? You ain't feed a million people. When you feed a million people, then you ask them about their political persuasion. (laughs) Are you like, man, this group, like a huge part of we hold to the orthodox biblical perspective on marriage, on uh, men and women being married. We hold to the biblical orthodox position on men and women not giving into same-sex attraction. But one thing that's just testimony after testimony, a lot of people in the LGBTQ community find homes and safety. And we just can't, we have to just sit back and say, while we don't agree with how, how they're choosing that particular lifestyle, we can acknowledge there is a compassion in that community that as followers of Jesus, we should imitate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That we should look and say, okay, they, they are compassionate and we want to open up our, our, our arms and say, okay, how do we create space to call you to righteousness, to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life, but also to be radically compassionate in this moment? Mm-hmm. Especially when a lot of folks, not, not so much as I, I think, but I could be wrong, not so much now, but especially when a lot of folks are getting kicked out of their homes mm-hmm. for getting yeah. open about um, their, their, their um, sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. We want to not imitate that sort of behavior. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so the formerly blind man, he answers their question from a rhetorical form. He's like, God does not listen to sinners. Is that a biblical statement? I don't think so. But he's like, God does not listen to sinners. <coughs> Minor premise, since God doesn't listen to sinners and I'm healed, he got to be from God. That's his basic premise. Mm. You know, sometimes wherever your faith is, even if you don't know nothing, the little bit you know, maybe God could work with that. Mm-hmm. You're like, that was dead wrong, but it worked, man. <laughs> you're like, it worked. That, it worked in that moment, and someone comes back, and you're like, well, whatever, man. <laughs> it encouraged me and encouraged them. Let's go to verse 35. We're going to wrap up here shortly. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? They asked him, Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. 
Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So Jesus initiates here. He finds the, the, the formerly blind man, and he asks him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the Son of Man is this figure from Daniel 7, um, <clears throat> this figure from Daniel 7 that relative to four other beasts, which is um, Babylon, Greece, um, Persia, and um, Rome, they thought Israel was going to be this human kingdom, this kingdom filled with humans and not monsters like these other nations. And Jesus is like, I am the embodiment of that. Do you believe this? Like, do you believe that? I am the son of man, and the guy's like, I don't even know what that is. And he's like, it's me. And he's like, okay, then I believe. <laughs> he's like, you can keep the theology, keep the books, Jesus, I believe, man, as long as it's you. And so his response is what's most important. See, he didn't know who Jesus was before. He didn't know who Jesus was during this whole journey. And once he found out, his response was what in verse 38? Worship. Mm-hmm. Like Once he found out who Jesus was, he was moved to worship. That is the biblical response to knowing who Jesus is. Mm -hmm. That is the daily call for us knowing who Jesus is, Mm -hmm. worship. Mm -hmm. Now, I will point out that most people who know how to read Greek, because I don't, will say that this is not divine worship here. And that's because Jesus has not yet raised from the dead. So he's moved. If you, John 1 till now, there's a progression of faith that's happening in the Gospel of John. And so now this guy has moved from, oh, man, Jesus is someone special to, I think you're like a king. And so he takes a posture of like, you're like a king. You're like a big deal. He has not yet moved to what you'll see later with Thomas's confession, my God, my Lord. He's not yet moved there, but the resurrection had not yet occurred. But there is a progression moving here. And Jesus is like, for judgment, I've come into this world. Now you're like, didn't John 3, 16 say that I did not come to judge the world but to save the world? Is Jesus contradicting himself a couple of chapters later? Did John forget he wrote chapter 3? <laughs> no. What, what the reality is, Jesus' presence, when he comes, even though his intent is not to bring judgment, not to bring condemnation, it's totally is a consequence of his presence. Yeah. Like, Jesus is a room divider if I've ever seen one. Mm-hmm. It's hard to have neutral opinions about Jesus. You can casually have a neutral opinion about Jesus as long as you don't dig too deeply. So if someone says, oh, he's a great moral teacher, and I've had my friends who are secular, hardcore secular, he's a great moral teacher. And I'm like, so you you on board with Jesus' stance on sexuality? No. So what part of his moral teaching do you like? You know, his call to care about the poor. So you're open with Jesus' radical call to simplicity. What do you mean radical call? I'm like, do you read the teachings of Jesus? You know, it's, it's an easy saying. He's a great moral teacher. That doesn't cost anything. But to actually look and see those morals that are great, you're like, okay, he's a room divider. Yeah. Jesus is a room divider. And you're like, isn't he peace, unity? But his way is just a room divider. Like, if you bring up Jesus during a, we had a birthday party for my son yesterday. If I would have knocked out Jesus, man, I would have cleared, cleared the room. What? Where did that come from? And then we talk about Jesus and we have conflict about Jesus. He's a room divider. And so the judgment he's talking about is if you can see a miracle like this, 
and your heart gets moved toward him, you're going to be like, man, I think I want to follow Jesus. There's other people who are like, man, skepticism just fills your heart the more you read this passage. The more you read passages like this, like, he doesn't do miracles. He doesn't work that way. Man, I hate this. And then slowly but surely, anyone who reads Jesus' teachings, I believe wholeheartedly, will grow in adoration and worship or will grow in disdain and hatred. But you will not remain neutral as you read those teachings. Those teachings do not keep you in that position. And so what is the sin of the Pharisees? Their disbelief. You know, John is the, the book of the, the book of all the all the New Testament books in particular that makes unbelief when exposed to something a sin. You know, a lot of times we think unbelief is a neutral position. Oh, they just don't believe. John would say if Jesus shown himself to that person in any course of their life and they have not responded in worship, that unbelief is sin. Which feels uncomfortable. You're like, whoa, that's totally not tree huggy type of stuff we need to hear, man. We need to hear Jesus loves them. He does. And yet their unbelief is held accountable. And they will stand before the living God in, the, in their unbelief. Like I mentioned, this is something that this, we have to get comfortable with. Rejection is a part of being a Christian. I think we've been in a good peace time, and I want that to continue. But I think sometimes, myself included, we could fear rejection or persecution or hatred so much that we don't honor Jesus. Mm-hmm. We end up like the parents who are like, oh, <laughs> I don't want to be associated with that, that particular Christian. Instead of like, okay, that's a part of it. And the part we're not going to read as a church, between chapter 14 and 17, talks about the world will hate you. Mm-hmm. You're like, God, oh, Jesus, I don't want to get hated by the world. But yet that's a part of following him. And so the Pharisees remain in their sin because of their unbelief. So what do we do as a people? What do we do? If you have something wrong spiritually, I want you to start praying for healing. Maybe you're always angry. Maybe you struggle with pornography. Maybe you struggle with hatred. Maybe you struggle with deceit. The healing that God provides, first and foremost, you go to prayer and then you start to spread it out in community. You start to be like, man, I need help to put my trust in Jesus and to faithfully obey him. And confession (coughs) is how we do that together. I think one of the areas that um, can be challenging now, especially if you feel really busy and hectic, is finding people to sit down and confess sin with. Not only confess sin, but start praying for transformation and holding one another to the standard of transformation. Not in harshness, but in love. I love a quote here from John Mark Homer. He says, um, a raw power and genuine freedom comes when you name your sin in the presence of love and community. Just just, Just the act of naming your sin out loud to people you know and trust has the power to break chains. AA is the perfect example of that. My name is fill in the blank and I'm an alcoholic. There's something powerful about that, and that's why you see the transformation consistently happens in that, in that group. And I think sometimes as Christians, we're like, how do I best present my sin in light that don't make you judge me? Mm-hmm. I wasn't like angry, angry. I was just mildly angry. Mm-hmm. It was like the indignation with a hit of self-righteousness. Mm-hmm. And you don't know what I've been through. You know, we just pepper everything mm-hmm. instead of like, come on, man, just walk in the light. God already seen it. And anyone in here who's ever had their own sin knows that they got it. And we encourage and we support one another in the midst of it. And so, 
we want to be a people who worship in spirit and truth, and that's orienting our whole life around God. And a huge part of that is what we do in um, in confession. So we're going to take communion, but I really want to challenge us this week within our community groups. Find time to confess. Find time to confess what's been happening. Be honest. Be honest. And if you don't feel safe, start there. Right? Actually, if I confess to this group, I'm going to feel hated, judged, and work your way from there. Nine times out of ten, those assumptions are, are, are all in our head. Yeah. Now, sometimes people are like, yeah, I will judge you and hate you. New group. <laughs> let's, let's pray for communion. 